Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Hi listeners, Benjamin here. Bit of a solo mission for me this week, so we've got a slightly shorter show than usual. Don't worry though, we've still got the news chat that's coming up at the end of the show. But first, I've got a story about antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, antibiotic resistance is a serious public health issue around the world. As more disease-causing bacteria evolve resistance to antibiotics, researchers are desperately searching for sources of new ones to replace them. And they're looking in some pretty wild places, inside sea sponges, in leaf-cutter ant colonies, and in sediment from the deep ocean bed, to name but three. This week in Nature, a team of scientists have found a new antibiotic, and it's made by bacteria of the genus Photorhabdus, which have a very particular ecological niche, as Kim Lewis from Northeastern University in the US explains. They live in the microbiome or in the gut uh, of nematodes that live in the soil. But it gets even more niche than that. These nematodes, which are tiny little worms, are parasites that feed on insect larvae, and they use Photorhabdus to help. It releases a toxin that paralyzes their prey. Both want to eat the larva, but Photorhabdus is not the only bacteria which want to get involved. Of course, there is now a problem with freeloaders that come from the external environment and also other bacteria that come from the gut of the nematode. These freeloading bacteria also want a larval lunch, but Photorhabdus has a trick to fend them off. It releases chemicals that kill off unwanted bacterial competitors. Essentially, it releases antibiotics. And that got Kim's attention. The chemicals released by Photorhabdus seemed promising as future antibiotics. They're non-toxic to the nematodes at least, and they were able to spread through the larval tissue. Strikingly, they also appeared to target gram-negative bacteria, and these are a type of bacteria that can cause a range of serious diseases, from urinary tract infections through to pneumonia, but they can be really hard to treat. Kim and his colleagues found that Photorhabdus was able to kill E. coli, a common gram-negative bacterium, and so they isolated the compound responsible, which they called darabactin. But there was a problem. It is too big. The cell wall of gram-negative bacteria is made of two membranes, and only small compounds can penetrate them both. So we have sort of a rule of thumb 
for molecules that can penetrate across the outer membrane of gram-negative bacteria, uh, you need to have a molecular weight of 600 or less. And the molecular weight of the compound we discover is 960. And yet, despite its size, darabactin was still killing E. coli. So how was it doing it? Well, it turns out that darabactin doesn't need to get inside E. coli at all. Kim found that darabactin's target is a protein found on the outer membrane of gram-negatives called BAM-A. And BAM-A has been quite a hot topic recently. In fact, two other papers have come out just in the last month describing molecules that target it. And that's for a reason. BAM-A plays a really important role. Essentially, it builds the outer membrane. So it takes proteins that the cell synthesizes and inserts them in the outer membrane. So if you jam that protein, then you cannot build an outer membrane and and the cell dies. Kim showed that darabactin was effective in mice, clearing them of infections caused by serious human pathogens, including strains resistant to other antibiotics. Now, Kim's findings are still quite preliminary, but they caught the attention of Timothy Walsh from Cardiff University, who wasn't involved in this research. It's always good to have a novel compound, and this is a novel compound, something we haven't seen before. You know, so that's a big tick in the box. The in vivo experimentation seems to be not only promising, but very exciting. But it's early days. There are lots of additional experiments that have to be done before we can start putting this into phase one clinical trials. Timothy says there are some things to follow up on, such as more extensive toxicity testing and testing darabactin against a wider range of disease-causing bacteria. There have been other curious findings to investigate as well. Kim did isolate E. coli that were resistant to darabactin, but the resistance seems to come at a cost. And although they didn't die in the presence of darabactin, these bacteria lost their ability to cause disease for reasons that are currently unclear. Kim is hoping to test more types of darabactin, which he and his team have found encoded in the genomes of other bacteria. Time will tell if darabactin will become part of our clinical armoury, but it's certainly one to watch. And you can read his paper over at nature.com. Coming up, we've got an extended news chat where I'll be hearing about the role that chance can play when awarding grants. Next up on the show, though, it's time for the research highlights. Read this week by Anna Nagel. Health tracking has become pretty commonplace. You might have a pedometer on your smartphone or a watch that measures your heart rate. But what about a toilet that monitors your metabolism? A team of researchers have been working towards just that. But first, they need to find out what information can be extracted from urine. To test this, two of the researchers collected their own urine over 10 days. By analysing their fluids, they were able to identify metabolic signatures. In this pilot test, the scientists were able to precisely measure markers of exercise and sleep, along with their coffee and alcohol intake. The researchers believe this first test case shows the potential of urine as a health metric and eventually hope to create a smart toilet that monitors it. Study that research on your next toilet break over in Nature Digital Medicine. The smell of old books may be pleasant to some, but for preservationists, it could be the telltale sign that a book is on its way to the great library in the sky. But now, researchers have developed an electronic nose to sniff out books prone to decay. 
By collecting a range of books published from 1567 to 2016, the team of scientists were able to identify the compounds emitted by different types of tome. The artificial nose developed by the researchers has six different sensors that picked up these different compounds, allowing it to distinguish between the distinct materials the books were made from and their age. These telltale signs suggest whether a book is more or less prone to degradation, so the researchers hope that this sensitive sniffer could help find books in need of preservation. Bookmark that research over in ACS Sensors. Well, finally on this show then, it's time for the news chat. And, uh, well, it's an extended news chat this week, and I am joined by not one, but two guests. And I have Nisha Gain, our European Bureau Chief, and I have Ewan Calloway, a senior reporter here at Nature. Thank you both so much for joining me today. For our first story, though, we're going to look at the world of funding. And I'm sure as many of our listeners know, if you apply for a grant, you have to fill in an absolute ream of paperwork and send it off, and then you get graded, and and the top 1% might get funded, and maybe the rest of them don't necessarily make the cuts. There's been a new method of awarding grants put forward, which is perhaps a little bit different and a little bit odd. Nisha, what can you tell me about this one? Yeah, that's right. This is kind of a cool story. And it's a a pretty radical suggestion in the world of uh, funding, as you said. It's the idea of assigning grants through effectively a lottery. But how on earth would you go about divvying up uh, pots of scientific money this way? In the usual process, as you mentioned, there is a lot of time spent writing applications and grant review panels ranking these applications and then deciding which ones to fund on the basis of merit. In these new systems that we're seeing, there is a little bit of initial scanning that is done to ensure that applications meet some kind of quality threshold. And then in some cases, these applications are pretty much picked out of a hat. In fact, one example of a funder says they actually have a hat. In other cases, it's a random number generation. But yeah, it's as a lottery works. So, so this is actually being done at the moment. This isn't some hypothetical thing. Yeah, that's right. We've got a, a couple of examples of agencies that are, are doing this. There's one in Switzerland. The Swiss National Science Foundation has tried this system with one of its grant types, as have a few funders in New Zealand. And a private foundation, the Volkswagen Foundation, which is Germany's biggest private science funder, has also been using this. Presumably then there are some benefits to this system. Proponents of this method say it just cuts the amount of time that is spent looking at grant applications. And the other is that the random nature of it roots out bias. There are lots of studies that suggest that gender bias and racial bias plagues grant review and peer review. And this is one way of rooting out that bias. Which seemed like good things, certainly. But if I'd spent, you know, a month filling in my form and, and then sort of losing out on the roll of a dice or whatever, I, m- I might be a bit miffed. I mean, is everybody happy with this sort of uh, potential way of doing things? Well, no. And interestingly, we spoke to one person who uh, was actually a recipient of one of these lottery grants. And he said that he prefers the original method. He says that researchers put time into writing high quality applications, and then that has a lot of value. So it's something that we're seeing at a couple of funders. And there is a group of proponents of this method meeting this week to try and encourage others in the research community to try it. But at the moment, it's still, of course, a minority of funders that are using it. Well, let's move on to our second story today. Then, And, and you and it's, it's one of yours. And it is an enormous project looking at the, uh, the genomes of butterfly species in the US and Canada. Yeah. So the story I've written is about 
a lab, you know, this is, is one lab in Texas and their collaborators that's decided to sequence the genome of every single butterfly species in the US and Canada, 845 of them to be precise. Which on the face of it seems like an enormous undertaking. I mean, why do they want to do this? Yeah, it is, it, it is an enormous undertaking. I mean, sequencing, DNA sequencing costs have plummeted in recent years. So it's not that outlandish for a well-funded group as this one is. The collection, I think, is, is the trickier issue, you know, working with museums and amateur collectors. And I think they even took some road trips. Uh, instead of flying to a conference, they just, you know, collected butterflies along the way. The reason for doing this, I think, is to study evolution writ large, you know. I think maybe the traditional approach is to study maybe one or two organisms or a group of organisms, you know, say one one genus of butterflies, for instance, and look at patterns of evolution there. But this group decided to look at, you know, lots of different groups and see if you can find repeating trends in evolution. And, and well, what, what have they found thus far then? They're interested in a question that I think, you know, Darwin probably asks, why are there so many animals of one kind and not so many of others? What explains the patterns of biodiversity that we see in the world? And one of their initial insights is it's kind of an emerging theme in evolutionary biology is that there is this kind of link between interbreeding between distantly related species or, you know, between distinct species and speciation. So they're finding that the groups of species that are most diverse are also most likely to have interbred in their past. And that's the theme we're seeing with other butterflies, with fish, with uh, Darwin's finches and, you know, other organisms. We're seeing this, this tight link between interbreeding and speciation, which is kind of exciting to see these, these patterns uh, occurring over and over in the tree of life. Mm, well, I mean, you, well, you said they've looked at 845 species, so all of them in the US and in Canada. But presumably there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of species of, of butterflies across the world. I mean, where, where does this work sort of fit in and, and what are they planning to do next? I don't know if there are hundreds of thousands of, of butterflies. There are lots. So yesterday, actually, I was at the Natural History Museum's insect collection. And I went into a room where an expert on butterflies and moths, who actually works with this team, he was sorting through this you know, Victorian-era collection, this really old collection. And I asked him tongue-in-cheek, so how many species have you found today? And he, he looks around, he's just like, well, three, but then I merged two species, so my net total for the day is two. But I think that brings home a point that there is just an immense diversity of insects, especially butterflies and moths. And... 845 might seem like a lot, but it is a drop in the bucket, you know? And there's this ongoing project called the Earth Biogenome Project, which is made up of lots of smaller projects um, to sequence, ideally, every uh, eukaryote, which are uh, animals, plants, fungi, and protozoa uh, on Earth. And, you know, they've targeted 1.5 million that we know, but what about all the ones we don't know? And that's going to be lots of them. So, you know, people have a lot of work to do, and it's mostly in the collections department. Well, final on this one then, you and you mentioned the sort of collections department. You mentioned you going to uh, to the Natural History Museum. I mean, did a lot of these genome species then come from sort of going out with your sort of Victorian butterfly net and catching stuff, or were they from samples that had been uh, stored away, you know, since antiquity or whatever? It was both. This research group has has forged really strong ties with insect collections 
probably all over the world, but I think in, they worked in particular with museums and collections in America. And they've got it such that for especially the, the lower quality genomes that they're generating for the vast majority of these species, that they can just take one leg and get enough data for a, a draft genome sequence. I know insects have, what, six legs. So, you know, if you want a higher quality genome, though, you're probably going to need to do, you know, get, get some butterfly nets and, and get an animal and, you know, preserve it. It's, it's, it's a huge undertaking, I think, to do the collection. But I think this group, like others, has leaned on, you know, the collections that have happened over centuries. So natural history museums are a real trove for this sort of work. Well, you and Anisha, let's move on to our final story then in this extended news chat. And, uh, and let's stick with DNA. But this time we're going to be talking about environmental DNA. Uh, which one of you would like to explain to me what that is? I mean, environmental DNA, as the name suggests, is DNA in the environment. It's this idea that every organism is sloughing off bits of DNA in its cells or, you know, what have you, and just leaving them in places. So there's probably a lot of environmental DNA in this recording studio. And the the innovation in the last, say, decade and a half has been that this DNA sticks around for a long time and we can just collect it, whether in soil or pond water or whatever, and get a, get an idea of what animals or plants or or whatever has been there in the past. So that, that's basically what environmental DNA is. So it's kind of a genetic silhouette then of what's existed in a place at a particular time and, uh, and what, what sort of things has it been used for? So in this case, we have an example of, of a really cool study that has tracked some remote water holes in Australia and they've been using this technique of tracking environmental DNA to detect an endangered bird for the first time. It's a bird called a Gouldian finch. And as Ewan said, it's highlighting the power of this technique using environmental DNA to identify or detect these kind of difficult to track species. And it's being increasingly used by environmental agencies. I mean, I, I guess the advantage is then that if it's a, a rare bird, you don't have to go out with your binoculars and see it. You can see evidence that it was there. But DNA, as we know, is, is, is kind of fragile, right? And, uh, and it kind of can, you know, can be difficult to detect. I mean, there, there must be some downsides to this particular way of working. Yeah, I mean, I think as, as Nisha notes, there aren't a ton of agreed upon standards for doing this sort of work. And I think that's something that agencies are working on because they see the huge potential of it. One other, I mean, you guys, you could call it a downside is that you can definitely determine whether an animal is there or not. And maybe you can, by measuring diversity of DNA, you can get some idea of that there are multiple animals. But Unlike traditional surveys of biodiversity, you don't really get a great census on population numbers. And it's not an achievable ask, but I think it's going to be the, one of the, the major challenges facing this technology is how do we know how many of something is there, which is really important for all sorts of questions that, that people might want to ask. But finding rare organisms, I think, I think it's great. One of my favorite papers came out a couple of years ago, and they used environmental DNA in the ocean to census whale sharks, which are this really, I mean, they're the biggest fish in the ocean, but they're just really hard to spot. But they're, you know, they're really rare to see, and they congregate in these large uh, groups, but we don't always always see them. So it's quite an exciting application, I think. Well, it, it seems then like, you know, you do need a sort of healthy mix of kind of uh, conventional methods and, uh, and maybe this sort of DNA-based stuff. But what might be the future of eDNA use? So we're seeing uh, this technique increasingly being used and alongside conventional methods, but uh, it's something that scientists say that for both animals and researchers can be more cost effective and in some cases safer uh, than the conventional methods of, of tracking animals. Well, thank you both for joining me today, Nisha and Ewan. Listeners, head over to nature.com slash news for more on these stories and more from the wide world of science. 
And that's it for this week's show. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Nature Podcast. So until then, I've been Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.